First Chronicles, we're going to start in uh, chapter 9, and then we'll be done with the genealogies after tonight. <laughs> I know, Ken, I know you're disappointed. <clears throat> you love to see me suffer through the veins. I, you know, I know. <laughs> but we're going to start in chapter 9. So we, we've seen uh, the past eight chapters uh, that we've gone through, all the genealogies of uh, the nation of Judah, all the different families, the tribes. And uh, the ins and outs, we've seen the prayer of Jabez and how God answered his prayer and that he was more righteous than uh, his brother. And then we've seen the family of, of Gad, whenever they went through the battle, crying out to the Lord in the midst of that battle to get their victory that the Lord gave them because why? They trusted in the Lord. So even though we see all these names and it can kind of be tiresome as we read through it, there's a lot of gems in there. There's a lot of a lot of stories in there that can... That can uh, Bring your heart cheer and a lot of things we can look at and we can uh, learn from their mistakes and not make those mistakes again. And we're going to see, as we get into chapter 10, 9 and 10 tonight, we're going to see another mistake that was making, made from Saul. And we want to make sure we don't make that mistake as well. So we can learn a lot from the Old Testament. Uh, let's turn to chapter 9, <clears throat> verse 1. And it says, so all of Israel was recorded by the genealogies, and indeed they were inscribed in the book of the kings of Israel. But Judah was carried away into captivity to Babylon because of their unfaithfulness. What a recurring <clears throat> message throughout First and Second Kings and here reminding us again about their unfaithfulness. And how much that can, that can really affect a, a people group or, or a person in, in general. And in verse 2 it says, And the first inhabitants dwelt in their possession in their cities were Israelites, priests, Levites, and the uh, Nethanim. So between verse 1 and verse 2 is about 70 years of history right there. They're carried off into captivity and they talk about those who came in to possess, repossess the land. So the author here skips about 70 years worth of history, but let's talk about those 70 years of history and let's talk about the history that happened before that and let's talk about God's faithfulness and patience that he had with his people. Nation of Judah, 200-something plus years. Nation of Israel, 200-something plus years that they were, they were a kingdom and such. And God had patience with them all the way, even though so many kings would not follow in the ways of the Lord and they did wicked in the sight of the Lord, God stayed patient with them. Just think about our own country right now, 200 plus years, and God's still patient with us. And we've seen a lot in 200 plus years, good and bad. But God's patience is still with us and God's faithfulness is still with his people. And we thank God for that because God could so easily zap us and take us out of, of, of where we're at because of the sins of America. He could have so easily taken out Judah and Israel like that the minute they started rebelling, but he didn't. He had patience with them and he, had, he put grace upon them because he didn't want anyone to perish. He didn't want anyone to have to be taken into captivity, but at some point, a lesson has to be learned, and we see the nation of Judah being carried off to Babylon. And then we see in verse 2, it talks about the inhabitants who dwelt in, the, in, uh, in their possession, in their cities. And we hear, see the name Israelites pop back up. 
they were known as those from Judah and they were known as those from Israel, but they were never known as the Israelites when that split came up. But now they're bringing that name back. They are now the Israelites, returning to the nation of Israel. Kind of wiping away that whole division for a moment and bringing them back as one nation <clears throat> as they return back into their, back into their land. So God also seemed to have kept, maybe kept the land empty for them while they were in exile as well, too, because they, they went right in and started repossessing their land. And we also see that he sent in the priests, Levites, and the Nethanim. His priorities were, let's get my kingdom set up first. Let's get, let's get the temple rebuilt. Let's get these things done. Let's get my ways in order first before we start rebuilding everything else in the nation. So that's what we, we, we got to get our priorities straight as well. When we're starting to walk in God's ways, we got to put him first in everything we do. And that's what I see from this, leading in with the priests and the Levites going in. We see the priests were the descendants of Aaron, who had the right to offer sacrifice and take care of the holy place and the temple. We also see the Levites, who were in a much broader class of religious workers, and they served the people throughout the nation. Then we have the Nethanim, who were also servants in the temple. <clears throat> they might have consisted of captives who had been spared but enslaved into the temple service. Early Hebrews examples include a certain Midianite woman in Numbers 31 and also the people of Gibeon. You can see that in Joshua. And moving on, we're going to be looking in verse 3. It says, Now in Jerusalem the children of Judah dwelt. And some of the children of Benjamin and the children of Ephraim and Manasseh. So here we see the fulfillment of Ezekiel and Hosea's prophecies where they went back into the nation after captivity. So we see that prophecy coming through there. And in verses 10, we're going to talk about the priests at Jerusalem. It says, of the priest, Jediah, Jehoarib, and Jachin. Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Meshalim, the son of Zadok, the son of Meriath, the son of Ahitub, the officer over the house of God. Adiah, the son of Jerohang, the son of uh, Peshur, the son of Melchajah, uh, Messiah, the son of Adel, the son of Jehazerah, the son of Meshalim, the son of Meshilameth, the son of Imar. And their brethren, uh, brethren, heads of their father's house, 1,760. They were very able men for the work of the service of the house of God. Are we very able men and women to be able to work in the house of God? We need to be able to work in our ministries. We need to be able to work on what the God has called us to do, And we see these people here were able to do that. In verses 14, we're going to look at more Levites in Jerusalem. <clears throat> and then going on to verse 17, we're going to talk about the gatekeepers and some of the other workers that were inside the temple. And it says, and the gatekeepers were Shalom, Akub, Tal- Talman, Ahiman, and their brethren, Shalom was the chief. Until they had been, uh, until they had been gatekeepers for the camps of the children of Levi, and the king's gate on the east, uh, 
Shalom, the son of Kor, the son of Abiasaph, and the son of Korah, and his brethren from the father's house, the, uh, the Korhites, were in charge of the work of the service, gatekeepers of the tabernacle. Their fathers had been keepers of the entrance to the camp of the Lord. And Phineas, the son of Eleazar, had been the office officer over them in time past. The Lord was with him. Zechariah, the son of Meshulamah, was keeper of the door of the tabernacle of meeting. All those chosen as gatekeepers were 212. They were recorded by their genealogy in their villages. David and Samuel, the seer, had appointed them to their trusted office. So they and their children were in charge of the gates of the house of the Lord, the house of the tabernacle by assignment. The gatekeepers were assigned to the four directions, the east, west, north, and south. And their brethren in their villages had to come with them from time to time for seven days. For in this trusted office were four chief gatekeepers. They were Levites, and they had charge over the chambers and treasures of the house of God. And they lodged all around the house of God because they had the responsibility and they were in charge of opening in the morning. So here we have these gatekeepers, and we're thinking with these gatekeepers that they were simply just someone who stood by doors, opened up the, the, the temple in the morning, maybe opened up for people to come in and what have you, but there was more to it than that. These gatekeepers would also keep out those who were unclean. Anyone coming in who may have had leprosy or anything like that, they would have to turn them away that they could not come in. Anything that may have caused harm, they would turn them away. But they would also help those who maybe couldn't get in on their own. And they would help to carry them in to the presence of God and let them come in and worship at the temple. So they were more than just gatekeepers. Now think of those who are in intercessory prayer. They are gatekeepers. They are people who will pray off demonic attacks. They will pray for the people in the church. They will pray on those who are in need. They will pray for whatever reasons, both holding the evil from coming into the church and also praying in blessings to the church. Those are our gatekeepers today, or our intercessors, those who are in this intercessory prayer. And we should all be intercessors. We've got to intercess for our families, our friends, our co-workers, our nation. Just like us praying here today, we're intercessing on behalf of the individuals that we listed. So we are all gatekeepers in some sense. We are all intercessors wanting to pray on behalf of others. And I think that is a very noble and good job to have. Then he mentions Phineas, uh, the son of Elizar, had been an officer over them in times past. And in Numbers 25, 7 through 13, it talks about Phineas. You don't have to turn there. I'll, I'll read it. In Numbers 25, verse 7, it says, Now when Phineas, the son of Elizar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through her body so that the plague was stopped among the children of Israel. And those who died in the plague were 24,000. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel 
because he was zealous with my zeal among them, so that, so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Therefore, uh, therefore say, Behold, I give to, my, give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him his descendants after him a covenant of everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. So God honored him by even mentioning him here in First Chronicles 9. So he was an honorable man. He did good things for the nation of Israel and for the Lord. And then we go to verse 35. And we're going to be transitioning from here into chapter 10. And we're going to look at King Saul's family. And I think it's rightfully so transitioning into chapter 10 where they talk about Saul. And it says, Jael, the father of Gibeon, whose wife's name was Maaka, uh, dwelt in Gibeon. His firstborn, uh, firstborn son was Abdon, then Zor, Kish, Baal, Ner, Nadab, Gedor, Ahio, Zechariah, and Mikloth. And Mikloth begot Shemin. They also dwelt alongside their relatives in Jerusalem with their uh, brethren. You remember the tribe of Benjamin dwelt around Jerusalem area. Uh, Nor begot Kish. Kish begot Saul. Saul begot Jonathan, Mekeshua, Abinadad, and Eshbaal. The sons of Jonathan were Mor, uh, Morib, Baal, and Merib, Baal. Makah, the sons of Makah were Pithon, Melech, Terah, and Ahaz. And Ahaz begot Jerah, Jerah begot Elmeth, Azmeveth, and Zimri, and Zimri begot Moza. Moza begot Benay, Raphiah, his son, Elisha, his son, and Azel, his son. And Azel had six sons whose names were these, Azrakam, Bochuru, Ishmael, Shariah, Obadiah, and Hanan. These were his son, the sons of Azel. So here we see the lineage of Saul and the sons that followed after him as we transition over into chapter 10. And we're going to look at the death of Saul coming up. Um, if you remember, the nation of Israel cried out for a king, just like the other nations around them. They wanted to be like the other nations. And God granted them that. They gave him a king. They gave him a head of state to say, to rule over them. God's not what, that wasn't what God wanted, but God allowed it because they wanted it. They didn't want judges no more. They didn't want to be ruled just by God. They wanted a king. We have to be careful as a nation, too, wanting what other nations want. We need to stick to our values and our biblical values and what God has planned for us. And not walk in the ways of other nations. And we've seen, we've seen what tragedy that ended up with the nation of Israel. Of not having just God the king. But they wanted a man to be king. And in verse 1. It says. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. And the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines. And fell slain on Mount Gaboa. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul. And his sons, and the Philistine killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Machshua, 
Saul's sons. So they're not going to speak much about Saul's reign, but they're going to speak about his death and the, and the death of his lineage here. And we look at this, the Philistines. Now, the Philistines were, were immigrant people. They were mostly a military nation, and they came from the island of Crete. A lot of the Philistines started filling in about the time that Abraham started coming into the nation, uh, into the promised land. And then it got even worse towards uh, Saul and David's time frame where this became the arch enemy of Israel. And we think about this today with the nation uh, they, they want to call Palestine. Now, they're not the same people, but the name intermingles with each other. And we got the same people. We got the, uh, the Palestinians who are now the arch enemy of Israel there, constantly causing problems with it. And it seems like Israel can never get away from these, these people. There's always some kind of issue going on with them. The Philistines were also seafaring people and uh, traded with distant lands. Therefore, a lot of their military uh, gear that they had was a little more superior than what Israel had as well. Israel can probably go up against Moab and Ammon. And and these countries, they were pretty equal in, in, in their military might. But the Philistines would get things from like Greece. And the armor they would have and, and, and the, they would use... They would have iron, as a matter of fact, they would use for their weapons. So they were always kind of a step ahead of what Israel was doing, at least in the natural. But we know in the spiritual, God had their back and that God was going to take care of the nation of Israel if they would follow his ways and not turn from them, which happened quite a bit. So it says the men of Israel fled from the Philistines. The Philistines had attacked deep into Israel territory here. And they finally caught up with Saul's sons and killed them. And now they're after Saul as we get into verse 3. It says the battle became fierce. And again, Saul, uh, against Saul, and the archers hit him. And he was wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it. Lest these uncircumcised men come and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not. For he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took his sword and fell on it. And when, he, when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died. So Saul and his three sons died, and all his house died together. What a tragic end for, for a man that, that was the, the ruler over Israel. The first king of Israel, he dies on the battlefield. His three sons are taken down. And we look at this, and, and some will say because of Saul thrusting the sword through himself, may say that he committed suicide on the battlefield. Is it suicide? Is it not? That's, that's left up for interpretation. There's one, one commentator said that his, the arrows that hit him mortally wounded him anyway, and basically he was taking himself out of suffering and out of the pain that he felt. And many will look at this and talk about and they talk about suicide. And let's talk about that for a minute. Is suicide sin? Absolutely. It's self-murder. You're just killing yourself. And God said, you shall, thou shall not murder. So, yes, it is. But at this moment, I don't believe it was suicide. And I also don't believe suicide is the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin is what? Not accepting Christ unto death, constantly rebelling against him. 
until you die, and then there is no hope. There is no chance to accept Christ at that point. But a lot of people want to say that suicide is and is not. Suicide is just a ploy of the enemy for you to harm yourself and to go against God's will. We look in John 10, 10, it says that the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And that's exactly what the thief does in suicide. I had a friend of mine that committed suicide when he was 19 years old. Never seen it coming. But the enemy had put these thoughts in his head, told him that he was, he was worthless, told him that he would amount to nothing, that he needs to go ahead and kill himself, and he listened to that. He wasn't born again. You know, I don't know what happened on, on that, that time when it happened. If he ever got saved, he didn't. I don't believe he did. I don't believe he did. And people just need to be careful. Christians can fall, fall prey to this as well. So we just have to, we have to understand that the enemy is constantly at work to destroy God's people. And we can't fall victim to his lies. And we can't fall victim to the, the fiery darts that he throws into our mind and the thoughts he puts in there. We've got to know that we've got a God that is a great God and has a lot of grace and a lot of mercy. And we need to worship him and we need to do what, do what his will is. But then we see Saul's sons die. And then moving on to verse 7. It says, And when the men of Israel who were in the valley saw that they had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook their cities and fled. Then the Philistines came and dwelt in them. They all ran. This happens a lot, not only in families, but in nations. When, when their leader dies, or that patriarch in that family dies, a lot of families fall apart, a lot of nations fall apart. I'm thinking, and I'm not going to speak too much in detail, but I'm thinking about my, my wife's family. When her grandparents died, especially her grandfather died, a lot of problems started happening after that. She would tell me stories about before he died, Everything was great. Everything was good. The family was together. But once he died, there was so much division happened in that family. And we see this here with Saul after he dies and then his sons die. And the people see this and they flee and they start to divide and they start to to break up as a nation because there's fear and there's uncertainty in the land. And we see this here with Saul. In verse 8, it says, So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his sons fallen on Mount Geboa. And they stripped him down, stripped him and took his head and his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. How degrading is that? finding Saul's body, they take his head and his armor and they bring it back to their, their, their place of dwelling and put it in their temple and put it in their, in the, in, to show off, basically say, look what we've done and to mock their God, to mock the God of the Bible. Hey, we got your king, we got his armor, we got his sons. What can you do to us? We have the victory now. But I will say this, they put him up in the, uh, in verse 10, it says, they put his armor in the temple of their gods and fastened his head in the temple of Dagon. Do you remember Dagon, what happened to Dagon? When the Ark of the Covenant was in there with him, he had to bow down. And it's pretty sad when 
you have to go and grab your God and rebuild it again to put it in your temple. That's not much of a God. And they would live the next day. What happened? The, the idol was on the ground on his face again. And they didn't want the ark after that. Take it back to Jerusalem. Take it back. But this is the same temple in the same place where they brought Saul uh, after they took his body and, t- and, and took him into the temple. So we see this God, Dagon. It's not much of a God. In verse 11 it says, And when all Jabesh Gilead heard all that the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons, and they brought them to Jabesh and buried their bones under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. So we see these valiant men in times of struggle, in times of heartache, in times of terror, there's always men that rise up to the occasion. Always men that will rise up and take on the challenge. And the challenge was to go get their king's body back, and to go get his son's bodies back from these pagan, pagan uh, enemies here. And if you remember with, with this group here, they were rescued by Saul. Whenever the, whenever the Amorites had came to their city, Saul came in and rescued them from the Amorites. So it was only fitting that they would go and basically repay the favor for Saul. They would go in and take his body back and repay the favor as, as it may be. In Galatians 6, 7, it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. And I think that came into play here. Saul saved them, and guess what? They went back and repaid Saul in grabbing his body and bringing him out and giving him a proper burial and taking him back to his people. Verse 13 says, and Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord, because he did not keep the word of the Lord, and also because he consulted a medium for guidance. But he did not inquire of the Lord, therefore he killed him and turned the kingdom of, over to David, the son of Jesse. So now we know the reason why Saul did not have such a great reign. He was unfaithful to God. He would turn to other sources. He turned to the medium. Remember when he would talk to her? What, what are you doing, Saul? You've got to turn to God. When he did the sacrifice before it was supposed to happen, what are you doing, Saul? Turn to God. But he tried to do a lot of things in his own strength, and he seeked out other sources to try and get the victory. When All he had to do was go to his God. And we see it throughout Scripture, the unfaithfulness of, of these kings, unfaithfulness of these people. What about our unfaithfulness at times? Let us not be unfaithful. Let us, let us continue to strive to be faithful unto God. We're going to fall, but let's keep getting up and being faithful to God. He's faithful to us when we're not faithful with him. But let us continue to walk and be faithful unto God. G. Kim and Morgan said, When a human being is called of God to service, there is always given to that one the guidance of God and direct spiritual communication. If there, if there be disobedience to guidance necessarily withdrawn, then the forsaken man or woman, craving for spiritual nature, aid, 
turns to sorcery, witchcraft, spiritualism, the issues is always destructive. And that's what we see with Saul. He was unfaithful to God, and so he turned to other directions to get guidance because God wasn't going to give him guidance. Because you don't want guidance from me? Go find it elsewhere. And that's what Saul did. He found it elsewhere. One thing is we're about to close. We look at Saul, who was a man who had incredible potential. He had everything that, that, that you would maybe want in a king. He had the looks. He was, he was tall in stature. He was a handsome guy. He was handpicked by, the, by God to be king of Israel. He had Samuel, Samuel by his side. He had a group of men around him who were loyal to him. He even had a change of heart at one time when the Holy Spirit came upon him. But that didn't last. Saul had so much going for him. So much going for him. But yet he would still turn his back on God. All that potential wasted. Everything that could have been with Saul wasted. He had a humble beginning. He started off very well. He started off good. But as times went on and he, he gets impatient and he doesn't want to follow the Lord and he wants to do it his own way and he wants, the, uh, he wants the prestige, he wants all the fame, he wants the glory, we see that leads straight to destruction. It says pride comes before the fall. And that's exactly here. Saul was full of pride in fall, and the fall came. And we see that. So I pray that we would be people that would read our word daily. We would seek the Lord in every area of our lives, no matter how small it is, that we would seek him and we would not follow in the way of Saul. This is a lesson that we can learn by others' mistakes. Saul would not seek the Lord. He wouldn't seek him. This is why destruction came. I don't want destruction. That means I don't need to seek the Lord. I need to seek him in every area of my life, whether it's financially, whether it's relationships, whether it's work-related. I mean, the smallest thing, Lord, what am I going to wear today? I don't, I don't know. We need to seek the Lord for everything and not turn to other avenues to get answers and not try to find those answers on our own. That will only lead to destruction. So if there's any lesson we can take from this tonight is don't be like Saul. Don't, don't seek out other avenues of instruction. Don't seek other avenues to accomplish things. Always seek that straight and narrow path to God to accomplish and to get guidance in our life. Amen? All right. Father, we uh, thank you for this word tonight. And, uh, we just ask, Lord, that we can walk that straight and narrow path with you and that our path is guided by you, Lord, that you would you'd be a lamp to our feet and just guide us where your will will be, Father God. And that we don't seek out other avenues, uh, other approaches, Lord, to our problems and our, and our issues in our day, Lord. But that we would come straight to you, straight to the throne room, Lord. And ask you, Lord, for whatever the answer may be. Ask you for guidance. Ask you for blessing. Ask you for provision. And that we don't seek it in any, any other form, Lord. Uh, we do thank you for those who are here tonight. I ask for your traveling mercies upon them. And that uh, you would bless each and every one. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.